Good afternoon. It's Friday the 9th of December, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mac Robinson. And uh, pleased to say, joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome back, Patrick. Oh, it's wonderful to be back, Mike. Is it? Good. Good, good yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's Except sunny, sunny Plymouth. Yeah. The weather's a bit dicey. But... A bit dicey, yeah. Uh, and we've got Vanessa Bailey joining us uh, today as well. Uh, welcome, Vanessa. We're going to get kicked off here, though, uh, with the latest statistics about the NHS, because, of course, it's not going very well, is it? Uh, so this is uh, the British Medical Association and their NHS backlog data analysis. Uh, and they're saying uh, and this is analysis of monthly data releases by NHS England to highlight the growing backlogs across the NHS, including operations data, cancer waiting lists, GP referrals and A&E waiting times. Uh, so just let's just look at the uh, backlog in terms of elective surgery, first of all, and see how this has gone. Patrick, well, first of all, we can see that their backlog was growing. Uh, for years up until the so-called pandemic began. Uh, but obviously since then, uh, the st steepness of the graph has increased somewhat. Um, and uh, so now we are at, as of October 22, 7.21 million people waiting for elective surgery. Uh, but it doesn't end there. Uh, let's go back to uh, emergency department attendances and weights. So the, the graph on the left is attendances. And basically we can see that aside from the dip as a result of the so-called pandemic uh, and people being encouraged to stay at home. That's been pretty static across the months. Uh, but what has not been static is the 12 hour plus wait time from decision to admission. Uh, and that is unbelievably serious. I don't know if you've got any thoughts. Well, no, not, not only that, but uh, I think a lot of people um, will find themselves um, even if they do take that wait time, Mike, and this is what we hear a lot from people, that um, they'll go through the whole process even at the A&E level um, and still not actually get the treatment or the, the procedure or whatever which they uh, intended to, to get or be seen to for the condition that they were meant to be seen for. Right. So there's that too. So there's, there's a lot of problems uh, with NHS service at the point of delivery. Um, so as we were pointing out earlier in the week then, uh, the government decided that uh, the best thing to do was to use the private sector to try to cut the ba backlog. So they're intending to uh, outsource much more treatment. Uh, but in fact, the BMA uh, is saying this isn't necessarily going to wor work. Sorry, let's just bring this back. Uh, the extent they say to which private hospitals will be able to take on NHS waiting list initiatives going forward is unclear, uh, given the increasing demand in the self-pay market and the backlog of private sector patients. So there's a backlog even in the private sector. Uh, given that the NHS and the private sector largely draw on the same pool of doctors, additional capacity may be less than it initially appears. This was made clear in the 2020 backlog, uh, block booking arrangements, which saw NHS gain facilities uh, rather than for workforce to run them. Uh, this is, at the end of the day, it seems a personnel availability problem more than anything else. Yeah, and I don't know if we'll comment on this later, Mike, but you said that this is just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Uh, there's all the people right. that uh, uh, aren't even seeking uh, care. Uh, for various reasons or people who have just been completely put off or for whatever reason uh, because of what's been going on over the last two years. So, I mean, the numbers really are, are uh, by magnitude bigger um, than what those graphs are showing. Indeed. Um, now, on Wednesday's program, uh, Debbie mentioned the fact that Andrew Bridgen had uh, stood up at Prime Minister's questions and asked a question. Uh, let's just listen to what he had to say. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, there have been more reported deaths and adverse reactions uh, following mRNA vaccination in 18 months 
than there has been to every uh, conventional vaccine administered worldwide for the last 50 years. And given that mRNA vaccines are not recommended for pregnant women or those who are breastfeeding, would my right honourable friend overturn the big pharma-funded MHRA's recent recommendation that these uh, experimental vaccines are administered to children as, as young as six months of age? Yeah. Uh, well, well, Mr Speaker, let me first say that I believe COVID vaccines are indeed safe and effective. He believes. Well, that's it. Uh, Rishi decrees. He believes that they're safe and effective, so therefore they must be safe and effective, right? Indeed. Well, Andrew Bridgen has been getting a bit of backlash. Uh, this is Leicester Shirt Live. Um, Andrew Bridgen told he should apologise over dangerous COVID vaccine claims. Uh, and of course, the fact checkers have been out in force. Uh, so here is uh, full fact. Andrew Bridgen wrong to say COVID-19 mRNA vaccines aren't recommended while pregnant or breastfeeding. I notice full fact don't seem to be criticising his comment about it having uh, COVID-19 vaccines having caused uh, more adverse reactions and deaths than any other vaccine in history. They're not, but they're, they're focusing on this. But let's just look at, at uh, what they said here. Of course, they're writing to the defense of the MHRA, uh, and they're basically saying that the MHRA runs the yellow card scheme. Uh, they talk about VAERS as well, uh, but they say that as of November 2022, the scheme has received and analyzed 177,925 reports covering 511,776 suspected reactions following vaccination with the Pfizer vaccine, uh, and they give the equivalent numbers for the Moderna vaccine. Uh, but they say these reports do not prove that the vaccine was the cause of the adverse reaction. And the MHRA specifically states the relative number and nature of reports should therefore not be used to compare safety of the different vaccines. Well, uh, of course, it may not prove that the vaccine was the cause, but it doesn't disprove that the vaccine was the cause. And just the fact that full factor stating that the MHRA says or the Department of Health says doesn't actually, or Pfizer for that matter, doesn't actually mean that Andrew Bridgen was wrong in the spirit of what he said. This is full fact basically trying to uh, say discard all of the data in the yellow card uh, databases, the open VAERS databases uh, in the United States, the VAERS databases, and also uh, UDRA vigilance in Europe. Just dis disregard all that because none of that is proof that there's an adverse reaction or a death as a result of the vaccine. So that is complete gaslighting by full fact. And their job there is a centralization of censorship, a centralization of speech control. And so here that you can see they're being deployed against. By the way, who are the foundations that fund organizations like Full Fact? Where are they getting their money from? Could, Big Pharma. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for instance, people who have vested interest in the vaccine mm -hmm. industry. So uh, where is the credibility there? I don't see any. Indeed. So what is the situation with miscarriages, excuse me, in the UK? Well, the problem here is that there are no statistics. This is the Office for National Statistics. Uh, UK data on uh, miscarriages and stillbirths. This is a Freedom of Information request that was put in in July 2021. And what they say under miscarriages is, uh, we hold data on live births, stillbirths and infant deaths, but not on miscarriages. NHS Digital may be better placed to answer your inquiry. They can be contacted and they give the, uh, the uh, advice there. But the fact of the matter is that uh, People have been in recent months calling for national miscarriage statistics to be routinely collected and published because they are not. Uh, and so my question is, uh, how is it possible for anybody to state that the vaccines have had no effect on miscarriages 
when the, there's no base statistics to, to make that assertion from. That's a very important statistic and record that should be kept, I would think, because isn't uh, infant mortality, Mike, that's one of the main index statistics that people use to determine the development level of a country, for instance, right. how well you're doing as a civilization, uh, infant mortality, why not uh, miscarriages and stillbirths? That is, seems to me like a, a totally uh, a prioritized data point that should be at the top of the list. Yeah, just, just to put a bit of context on this, uh, prior to 2020, let's say, uh, it was estimated, it's only an estimate that one in five or one in six pregnancies end in a miscarriage. Uh, so, but th there's no indication what's happened in the last two years and maybe another couple of years before we can find out. Uh, but let's move on to, um, well, I'm sorry to say, and I do apologize in advance, Matt Hancock. Well, we just, we just thought we'd point out, you know, an amazing scene, mainstream media, former mainstream media colleagues um, and people who work with the likes of Piers Morgan, et cetera, Good Morning Britain as a, as a major talk show. Um, here's a clip of all the presenters just basically laying in to the former Secretary of State for Health Matt Hancock, and totally merciless. I have not seen, Mike, uh, the mainstream media attack anybody in the establishment with this level of, of vitriol and basically not hold, pulling any punches. And I'm, I was quite shocked by how hard they went for Hancock, and not just one or two of them, the whole panel. Right. So let's, let's watch this. But this was odd. This was during our interview on Good Morning Britain back in December 2020. Oh, God. Well, it's just, uh, it's been, you know, it's been such a tough year for so many people. It's interesting. I couldn't hear our actual um, questions to Hancock on that. People fallen on the floor. <laughs> Shock. I mean, well, I mean, what, you, get the sick bag. Do you know out. what? I thought he was laughing yeah. At, yeah. The, at the time. I thought he was laughing, but of course he was apparently crying. He's now explained it in his diaries. Mm. He recalls a series of television appearances to mark the day the first Britons were inoculated. You need to relax. Colo D'Angelo told him, that's Gina, of course, who was his um, lover at the time, and still, uh, stop being so buttoned up. What she did not mean, said Mr Hancock, was that I should lose it altogether, which unfortunately is exactly what happened. I was on my own in a dark windowless booth answering questions when they played the video of Margaret Keenan getting her jab. She was the first person. Suddenly, I completely lost it, blubbing away, battling to regain my composure as tears streamed down my face. No, they didn't. Where well, <laughs> They didn't stream down. You can't see any. Look, he's an actor and he's a bad actor. He fabricates uh, situations. He's been told to be emotional, so he pretends he's emotional. And I agree. It sounds like he's trying to suppress a laugh. Maybe he was laughing at us all with that little act. For Christ's sake, pull yourself together, I told myself desperately. Then the camera was back on me, my microphone was live, and my watery red eyes were there for all to see. Gina said, at least I'd shown how I felt. He's a fantasist. All about him. Yeah. It's All about him. Politicians that keep diaries, right? You know, there are public servants go to yeah. work every single yeah, day. Yeah. Our nurses, our police, yeah. all the people we're talking about, right? I have to say, Patrick, I find that absolutely despicable. That, 
that those people or people like them were around that table when he was making that the, the, the crocodile tears were not coming out of his eyes yeah. and they were absolutely supporting him at the time they were supporting the narrative at the time now they're trying to backtrack as fast as they can i'm not writing to the defense of matt hancock here by any means but yeah. But, you know, what's going on here? These people, are they feeling nervous about the position they took two years ago? Well, yeah, we're not writing to the defense of Matt Hancock, but I think, is it, is it Fiona Rose? I'm not sure of her name, but the, 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 the female presenter there. She said, whoever it was, she said, um, I thought he was laughing at the time and wasn't crying. Well, why didn't you say so? I mean, you should have taken the mickey out of him at that moment. That would have been great if you're a journalist to do that and expose what a fraud uh, he is. And now half the country obviously more regard him as a complete charlatan and a fraud, which is why he had to go and uh, go in the jungle and do all sorts of skits and challenges to up his uh, public relations image uh, to prepare for his exit from politics because he's not going to defend his seat, is he? He's, no, he's out. Right. He's out. He's out. Just like uh, the other health minister, was it uh, Sajid Javid? Javid? He's not running either. So it's interesting. Those are two prominent COVIDians uh, that led the whole agenda, and all of a sudden they're being quietly whisked out by Tory Party Central. There, uh, get rid of the damaged goods, right ahead of the next general election, right? Because it's just too easy. It's like fish in a barrel. Uh, criticizing these people now, looking back, and so the media—they're all basically taking these, uh, you know, rear guard action positions, aren't they? Uh, especially the Daily Mirror, the Daily Mirror editor there, is basically calling him out as a fraud, a liar, and all this. Where were you? Where were you when the, when he was telling everybody they need to get jabbed or they couldn't have a job? They can't be allowed to get away with this. Unbelievable. Right. So what's going on in the States then? What's going on in the States? So the, the, the vaccine mandate, the United States has lifted um, uh, some of the vaccine mandates for U.S. citizens, for instance, to re-enter the country. And they're being lifted and de defeated in multiple court cases, okay? High court cases, federal uh, appeals courts. But the military one, that is the jewel in the crown mm -hmm. of the White House because if you if the military require it, at least it gives some credence for other institutions to require it. So Biden's vaccine mandate for the military has been roundly defeated this week. And this new defense bill is basically Congress using the power of the purse. So you, you said, what's a Republican Congress going to do differently than a Democratic Congress? Well, here's a good example. They're basically re, re, uh, taking funding away uh, for this and basically saying not only that, it should be deemed as illegal, uh, unconstitutional, and unlawful to require members of the military to deny them their basic constitutional rights mm -hmm. that make them, compel them to take an experimental uh, mRNA gene jab, basically. So that's out. And so the pharmaceutical uh, industry, they're not happy about this, obviously, because that was the locking in profits for the next quarter, uh, year-round. I mean, the military provides a stable profit source where the, the doses that are sold to the Defense Department are being done so at a premium, mm -hmm. much, much more expensive than on the consumer uh, commercial side, okay, or through the health insurance companies even. So, so this is a huge defeat for, for Biden. Let's take a look at this, though. There he is. Joe's not happy about this. Of course, the Biden administration, the military vaccine mandate uh, to get fully vaccinated or face discharge resulted in 8,000 troops being kicked out of the military. Uh, however, the mandate also threatened the livelihoods of at least 60,000 more service members who did not wish to take the vaccine, also their families as well. Uh, so, and look at this. So thousands of those who had filed for a religious exemption for the vaccine, but the requests were dismissed 
and this was done autom automatically. I think we co recovered that at yeah, the we time. Did. We did, yeah. This was done through an AI application that the uh, military used, prompted a warning from the Pentagon Inspector General. So basically, the, the regulatory bodies are finally waking up, pushing back on this. The wheels of justice in America are incredibly s slow. Here's Thomas Massey, uh, one of the leaders there, or a member of the Freedom Caucus. So the military COVID vaccine mandate will end. So this was done as part of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. That's effectively like a rollover legislation that's become like a statutory instrument on steroids and enables every bad policy in the United States. So he's basically saying, detaching this vaccine mandate, this COVID vaccine issue from the NDAA. Right. So that's how Biden, and or Trump probably is, is, it probably started under Trump, but definitely under Biden. I don't know what the deal with Trump was on this uh, per se, but Biden really held on to this. Chip Roy, he's also a member of the Freedom Caucus. So the, this is a faction within the Republican Party in the House that is on, you know, they're, good, they're I would say, on team reality. They're on team common sense. They're doing their job as legislators, which is what we should expect from our politicians. So they've been pushing this for two years, Mike, mm. two years. Finally, this bill gets passed. So that shows you that elections do have consequences. I know we like to be cynical about politics and elections and our vote doesn't count and we're all disenfranchised at some level and that's true. Uh, and maybe policy doesn't always uh, turn in favor of how we'd like it, but there, there are opportunities to push back bad policy and legislation. It can happen, right. but it's not easy. This is one example of it. Sure. Uh, which takes us to Naomi Wolf then? Yeah, so on the vaccine issue, campuses, this is the other front line on this. Students are going back to, to college this fall, this winter, and some, some of them are being required um, or compelled by the university to get vaccinated or get boosted in order to have access right. uh, to classes and campus life. So Naomi Wolf, best-selling author, former Democratic strategist, I believe an advisor to Hillary Clinton, uh, and, uh, and, or the Clinton administration, I believe, mm -hmm. Bill Clinton, I think. But uh, she's, she's gone back to her alma mater, Yale, Ivy League school, and she's pitched up and she's heading this rally here. We've got a clip of this and it's very powerful. You can watch the full 18 minute speech online. It's on a number of video sharing platforms already. Just put Naomi Wolf in Yale University and here's this and I think it's worth listening to. What a liberal arts education is supposed to provide, which is discerning liberty of thought, freedom of expression and informed consent. I cannot believe, like I'm literally speaking here, but my heart is breaking and I'm on the verge of tears because I cannot believe that in the year 2022, after 35 years of advocacy for women's health and human rights and civil liberties, I'm standing here to say Yale University should not mandate 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds with an experimental, dangerous mRNA lipid nanoparticle injection just so they can come back to school and resume their educations. I can't believe I have to say this, but, but here we are. And these young people who don't deserve to even have to think about this endangerment of their future, this crushing of their spirits just to get the education that many of their parents have slaved for and saved for for years. 
and that they worked so hard to obtain. I am here to tell Yale University, I used to live just beyond there when I was a freshman. I lived at Davenport and then Berkeley when I was an undergraduate. I believed that this place would protect the civilization that it sought to portray, right? A civilization in which I learned about the Nuremberg Code here at Yale. I learned about the Geneva Conventions here at Yale. I learned about the Hippocratic Oath and Galen and the great tradition of medical uh, illumination here at Yale University. I cannot believe I'm standing outside these, these walls saying, don't coerce children and young adults, minors and young adults into damaging their, their lives and submitting to an illegal injection that violates the Geneva Conventions, that violates the Nuremberg Code, that violates the Hippocratic Oath, that violates basic human rights so these kids can pick up their education. Fair enough. So if I had one criticism for Andrew Bridgen, MP, is that the points Naomi Wolf was making there are legal points. These, this is about the rule of law. Are we, do we live in a nation of laws? Do we recognize international treaties that have stood the test of time and all of a sudden all these things have been discarded and thrown out the window? Those are the issues that he should be bringing as well on the floor of the House of Commons when he's challenging uh, the, the Prime Minister, for instance, or you know, that issue, bringing that issue up. Yes. But those are real. They can have teeth. But uh, otherwise, the fact checkers rule uh, in, in the unproven uh, realm of pseudoscience. So that's one suggestion I'd give yep. to Andrew Bridgen. Yeah, okay. So uh, where does that take us uh, in terms of uh, uh, infertility, for example? Well, this is the big issue. And this isn't specifically to do with uh, talking about vaccines, Michael, though a lot of people have made uh, allusions to this a fact, a fact with the, the risks of infertility for male and female with the vaccines. But that's not what this is about. So this is interesting. There's some studies that have been done uh, regarding male fertility uh, in recent years. And Mike, the, 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 the picture is, is really dark. Mm. And it's getting, it's getting worse. And we want to point uh, to this here. I know I, I referenced that film Children of Men uh, that I believe that was uh, 2006. Yeah, Clive Owen. Yeah, yeah. Clive Owen, the uh, star of that. So it was about the end of human reproduction. They literally people stopped having kids and they had no idea why, what, what brought that on. So 18 years passed, no new babies globally. So it's a science fiction film. It's a dystopian film. But is there some truth to this? Well, look at this national pulse here. Spermageddon, uh, they're calling it in this article, humanity may be functionally infertile by 2050, new study warns. So this is interesting. Massive decline in sperm counts are a global problem, according to new research that has evident implications for the survival of the natural human race. Current trends in sperm counts, if extrapolated, suggest as early as 2050, the species may have trouble reproducing. What does that mean exactly? It means this. Researchers have further corroborated prior information gained on sperm counts in North America, Europe, Australia, revealing the decline in sperm counts is mirrored in the South as well, in Central America, in Asia, in Africa too. China's experienced a nev negative birth rate. India, negative birth rate. They're not having a high enough birth rate to meet uh, replacement uh, on population. So this isn't just a European and a North American issue or a first world issue. This is global. And look at this. The median man will have a sperm count of zero, meaning that 
one half of all men will produce no sperm at all, and the other half will produce so few as to be functionally infertile. That's the important term, Mike, Funch functionally infertile. That means that you'll have a range, but the medium is going to be zero. That means 2050, uh, this spermageddon or this uh, children of men situation uh, could become a reality. Nobody wants to talk about this. This is hugely uncomfortable uh, issue to talk about. Do you see any politicians talking about this? Are they interested in talking about it? This is kind of an existential problem yep. for humanity. What else is more important? I don't know. Maybe climate change. What do you think? I mean, this is real. So <laughs> we, all we can talk about is climate change. So uh, I, I don't know. That's I watched that film, Mike, years ago, and it, it left a, a heavy mark on a lot of people who it's, watched it. Of course, it. also the basis of The Handmaid's Tale, if anybody wants to watch popular culture and, uh, and see this type of subject being tackled. Yeah. Uh, but let's uh, move to China. Then finally on this, uh, this subject, uh, Patrick, well, and the question is, has China begun implementing its uh, uh, relaxation of COVID-0? Well, this is interesting. So this has been a big damaging uh, issue for Xi Jinping and the Central Party. Okay, so they are lifting restrictions. They're relaxing restrictions a little bit. The good news is the market is reacted. Uh, investors are reacting positively. They're moving back uh, towards doing business with China on this mm -hmm. because it was an impossible uh, environment. But what are they really proposing here? So instead of lockdowns, massive lockdowns, now they're moving to targeted lockdowns. So instead of whole cities or whole districts within a city, you're talking about floor apartment buildings or floors um, within an apartment building. So they're still doing this targeted lockdown, um, shorter lockdowns, so instead of longer periods, shorter, uh, brief, briefer periods. And they're only closing roads and major thoroughfares for what they would deem extreme emergencies. So they used to give the local prefect uh, the authority to, to make these sort of broad sweeping lockdown co anti-COVID measures. And now the uh, central party stepped in and said, you guys can't do that, only if it meets certain thresholds. And so they're also relaxing the health code. So China has that pass on the smartphone right. with WeChat app and where you, it's a traffic light system. So now they're relaxing the health code system. So you, you're allowed to self-isolate if you're an asymptomatic case before even an asymptomatic case had to go to the government field hospital or the COVID camp. And so now that's been relaxed. So they are pulling back, but all the restrictions are still there. They're still there. They've just been dialed down and localized. Okay. So, so that's interesting. So I think people should pay attention to what's going on in China because it could be reflected in our policy too if our government still want to press these buttons. Okay. Uh, okay. If you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, but we just would like to say that with the way that the postal strikes are going, another strike today, uh, then uh, the things are getting increasingly dodgy about whether we'd be able to get stuff to people by Christmas. Uh, and we're hearing very disturbing tales of what's going on in post office sorting offices. So uh, you may want to consider that. Uh, but also please share the material on the various platforms. Uh, and then another reminder that tomorrow uh, we have the fifth uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium uh, on the UK column and uh, other places, but watch on the UK column if you can. Uh, it's going to be a, a great event. Please join us for that. It begins at 4 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. And finally, uh, just a brief reminder that David Scott is hosting 
another short symposium on Thursday the 15th starting at 4.30 p.m. Uh, entitled Education Not Indoctrination. More details about that on Monday. Now um, yesterday I was speaking to uh, David Fleming who is from uh, the COVID-19 Assembly. He started a new initiative to try to get people re-engaged on uh, getting out and organizing and so on. Um, so I, I just uh, began yesterday by asking about that and uh, let's have a listen to what he said. As you say, I worked together and COVID-19 Assembly and all along my idea has been to get the word out to people. I mean, if you look at the graphics on the COVID-19 website, you see that they're all about people spreading information in local areas. So I just want to take that a step further. Um, we want to get people to, the average person to sign up on a sort of a very simple binary decision, like do you want a good future for your family or a bad future for your family? Now, obviously most people say good future and we genuinely think that we need to get people's attention on the bad future that's been sort of foisted upon us um, by you know, unelected people or whatever. Um, so we get people to realize that the future that's been built for us by default is actually a bad future. And we want to show them that, you know, we can work together to have a better future. So um, the plan is to just get out there and get the information out to people. Because, I mean, when I think of people I know, you know, who aren't, you know, thinking the way we do, they just don't know this stuff. You know, I mean, you know, even after all this time, two and a half years or, or longer in other cases like climate or whatever, they just don't know the information. And whenever it is presented to them, you know, it's it's framed as conspiracy theories or whatever. So we just need to get the word out to people. And we're not, the idea is that we're not going out there, you know, speaking to strangers. It's, it's designed so that people will have conversations with people they already know and trust so it'll be friends families and everybody talking to each other so the biggest part of the plan is that we will literally get leaflets in houses every house in the country you know you know every week if possible on information that's key to all this and um and that will I know most leaflets go in the bin, but some of them will stick and some people will think about them. Um, it will make people think, ask questions, and then friends, family, neighbours, work colleagues who already um, are on our side will be there to just speak to them and answer the questions if they have questions. And it's, it'll be a slow process, but it'll, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll grow rapidly and um, spread quickly um, from, a, from a small beginning. Uh, but you're aiming for a, a sort of a, a mass process. You're looking for a lot of people to get signed up. Yeah, the, the idea is that, I mean, it's a two-stage process. Right now, we're in the process of getting people already on our side together, in, you know, working on this. And then we'll get volunteers from that to go out on the street, delivering leaflets, um, getting the message into homes. And, and then it'll grow from there. So some people will sign up as well and, and it'll just go from there and grow bigger. Um, you, know, I've, you know, I've worked out, you know, quite a good plan on how to get things out there and how to make it sustainable to make people, you know, I mean, leaflets are relatively cheap. So it can be crowdfunded by, by just a few volunteers each time to get the leaflets out there. So it's not, money isn't, isn't the biggest problem or anything. It's just getting people out there. So, I mean, we're starting small, but, Hopefully it'll grow quickly.
I know there's a lot of people out there who are already interested. I mean, we've had thousands of people sign up already, so it's, it's you know, the plan is it's going to work. We're going to test it soon in Oxford. We're going to go to Oxford and uh, have a day there in the first week of um, January, um, you know, based around the 15-minute neighbourhoods that they've, they've announced, um, just to get the word out there to people that this is part of something bigger. And it'll show how, how we can work. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good idea. Now, uh, I've noticed on the website there are some uh, well-known names have already uh, sort of put their faces uh, to this. So, so who's uh, who's signed up already? Well, yeah, Ryan Fulmish is is behind this. Mike Eden, um, Tess Laurie, um, you know, there's loads of people. Magic Nawaz, with uh, Patrick Wood, Wood um, who's you know great on the uh, technocracy and that. Um, so yeah, if you go to the website at notourfuture.org, you can see who's on board. But yeah, we've got a, a growing list of um, well-known people. I mean, I, I wanted from the start to get people from all across, um, you know, COVID climate economy, uh, just to get um, to show people that it, this is more than just COVID. I mean, that's what, and even more than climate. So we want to get people in there who are. Uh, focus on the money side of things as well, which is obviously crucial to all this. Are, are people able to sign up already for the for the uh, effort in Oxford in the first week of Jan? Um, yeah, I mean, there's two things you can do on the website. You can sign the pledge. And the idea is that it's a pledge between people. It's it's not a petition. Uh, I don't like petitions. I'm not, not, we're not asking authority for, for favours. Um, so sign the pledge or there's a volunteer form if you want to you know, offer your services to manage a team, deliver leaflets, that kind of thing. And that's where you would sign up for the Oxford thing, just through that. Just put, once we know your postcode, um, we know where you are. So we know you're in Oxford, so you can sign up for that. But for, for Oxford, you don't have to be part of the Oxford. You don't have to live in Oxford uh, at the moment. You don't mind if people come from anywhere in the country for that one, because it's going to be big. Because usually the plan is that we'll do deliver leaflets over a week, say, for instance, in a town. Whereas for Oxford, we want to do it all in one day. So we do want lots of people to come along and join in for the day and go from there. Okay, so if anybody would like to uh, get involved with that, um, it's notourfuture.org. And you can see the Freds have uh, already got signed up for that. But of course, he was talking there about the 15-minute uh, uh, city initiative in Oxford. We pointed this out a couple of days ago. Uh, traffic filters will divide the city into six 15-minute neighbourhoods, uh, agrees Highways Councillor. Uh, this is what they were talking about, people being able to fry, drive freely around their own neighbourhoods but would need to apply for a permit to drive through the filters. Uh, now, many people were suggesting that this meant physical barriers. Uh, Oxford uh, County Council have decided that they felt they need to uh, clarify that situation. So this is what they're saying in an updated article in Oxfordshire Life. Contrary to the viral article's claims, there are no physical barriers. The restriction zones will be monitored by automated, automated, automatic number plate recognition cameras uh, that are going to be placed in various places. Uh, everyone in the city will be accessible by car, although some private car drivers may need to use a different route, is the quote from the council uh, when they are operating uh, private cars will not be allowed through without a permit. All other vehicles, including buses, coaches, taxis, vans, mopeds, motorbikes and HGVs will be allowed at all times. So that's okay then, isn't it, Patrick? Well, what about electric cars? What if I've splashed 30,000 quid on a Tesla? Do I get to go through? No. 
Really? No. Nope. So that's not green enough? No. Nope. Wow, that is a real kick in the teeth, isn't it? Well, what's happening in Switzerland? <laughs> well, the, how, how green are the electric cars? Well, you know, the Swiss have a little bit of a problem, uh, Mike. Uh, you know, charging these electric cars and filling up these lithium batteries are a little bit of a pull on the grid. Uh, so Switzerland is now considering electric vehicle ban to avoid blackouts. Can you believe this? Yes. So there's the Tesla pulling up to charge there to pull that green energy, that coal-fired and natural gas-fired green energy, and fill up that lithium battery. So th th this is going to become a problem, Mike. Imagine if everybody had electric cars. What do you think that would be like in terms of taxing well, the energy grid? We have been talking about this for quite some time, and of course it, the energy grid will not be able to support it. Yeah, and so this is just Switzerland. This is just Switzerland. What's interesting about Switzerland, Mike, where do they get their electricity from? Uh, France. Well, they used to. <laughs> they used to. France is, used to be a net exporter of power. Yep. But because of green energy policies and McKinsey and company taking over the bureaucracy, Emmanuel Macron has decided to try to denuclearize uh, France, which is really a genius thing to do, considering that is their main source of power. And they were exporting. So here's Macron now. And check this out. So he's demanding that people stop spreading fear, panic about the potential of blackouts this winter. He's saying, stop the panic. It's not going to happen. Uh, we've got it all under control. RTE, the state uh, energy uh, institutions, got it all under control. And here's Macron. Uh, we are a great country. We have a great energy model. Actually, maybe you did. Uh, we will hold on this winter despite the war, you see, mm -hmm. invoking the war there. So all of this is because of Putin and Ukraine. Okay. So I ask everyone to do their job. And he's telling we need to be sober, using that term, sober as a country. He uses that term quite a lot. The only problem here, Mike, is that what Ma Macron is saying is very much at odds with what the heads of the power companies are saying here. Uh, energy rationing and shortages are likely in France, admits RTE chief, electric grid chief there. And this is reported by Breitbart. Um, so a little bit of a problem there in terms of consistency. Um, so he's saying, everyone calm down. I think you're looking at a very desperate politician yes. in Emmanuel Macron. And so he's just becoming more and more unpopular by the day. And so, well, he managed to escape a uh, certain death uh, in the last election cycle. but he, Political death you're talking political about. Political death, yes, yes. but he has no mandate at all, not even close. Yes. And I think you're going to see that reflected in the opposition uh, from the people when they start taking to the streets again this winter. Okay, well, uh, let's uh, welcome Vanessa onto the program at last, Vanessa. And we're going to get kicked off here with uh, Angela Merkel. Yeah, this was an interview that uh, Merkel did for uh, Zeit media in Germany, I think a couple of days ago. And um, basically, this was reported in RT. Uh, Merkel has admitted deception over the Minsk peace deal. Uh, and then reading from the text in the article in an interview with Zeit magazine published on Wednesday, Merkel said that the Minsk protocol brokered by Germany and France was an attempt to give Ukraine time which it used to become stronger as evidenced on the battlefield now. Of course, that also means that gave NATO time um, to build up its own military bases uh, and to send weapons into uh, the Ukrainian forces, including, of course, uh, the neo-Nazi forces of the Azov and Ida and various other battalions. 
She was referring to the first of the two documents known collectively as the Minsk Agreements that were designed to help Kiev reconcile with rebels uh, in the east, in Donbass, who had rejected the outcome of the US-backed armed coup in Kiev 2014. Um, but what is interesting, in the Zait interview, Merkel stated that Russia could easily have overrun Ukrainian troops in 2015, adding that she doubted that NATO countries could have done as much then as they do now. So effectively, she's saying, and, and I have to say this reminds me very much of, for example, the uh, Syrian Arab Army and Russian liberation campaign in East Aleppo in 2016, which if people remember back then, um, was constantly um, halted by the UN, i.e. the US and UK and EU cabal, calling for ceasefires in order to allow the armed groups dominated by Al-Qaeda to regroup and be rearmed um, with weapons that were coming in, often with UN so-called humanitarian um, convoys uh, into eastern Aleppo. So th this reminds me very much of that situation. Then we had uh, Maria Zaharova from uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry immediately after seeing the interview with Merkel. Uh, and she said basically in, in, a, in one of her press briefings, what Merkel said in her interview is the testimony of a person who directly stated that everything that was done in 2014 and 15 had one goal, to divert the view of the world community from real problems, to play for time, to pump up the Kiev regime with weapons and lead the matter to a big conflict. Zaharova has also basically said that she considers Merkel's remarks to be um, legitimate evidence of uh, foul play that will be investigated by the war crimes tribunal that has been established by Russia. And, and uh, Vanessa, this sort of really undermines the Western narrative that uh, they keep the, the big talking point across the media. This is a war of choice by Putin and <laughs> this active aggression as if the, the, the timeline of history began on February 25th, 2022. Yeah. But this is Absolutely. actually the key point, isn't it? Minsk, the peace process was there, was available, but wasn't mm -hmm. uh, seen through. And it looks like it wasn't worse genuine. Yeah, it wasn't genuine, basically. I think I think that is what Merkel is saying. And it's kind of interesting because of all the German leaders that I would have expected in a way to be more sympathetic towards Russia and to have pivoted towards Russia um, during her leadership, I don't know if you agree, Pat, would have been Merkel. So it's kind of interesting that she's coming out with this statement um, now that effectively, as you say, undermines the, the NATO narrative in Ukraine. Interesting. Well, I, I think to that I would add, uh, to Vanessa and Mike, I would add that if Merkel was so anti-Russian, well, she's clearly not, but she wouldn't have signed the Nord Stream uh, <laughs> 2 pipeline yeah. agreement and moved forward with such a big joint project. But the juggernaut of politics mm -hmm. and outrage and everything uh, over the last 12 months, I think is too much for any Western politician to bear. But now, with a little bit of distance and as things are settling into a very dark place uh, for Ukraine, I think a lot of people are speaking up. A dark place for Europe, too, this winter, uh, you know, not figuratively speaking either. Uh, but, uh, well, good news, Patrick, because uh, Vladimir Zelensky is the person of the year. That's right. That's right. People always complain about this show, Mike, say it's all bad news. 
It's not all bad news, folks. It's, this is a feel-good story. Time Magazine has awarded their Person of the Year, formerly Man of the Year, that's not politically correct, Person of the Year to none other than Vlad, Vladimir Zelensky, or if you speak Russian, Vladimir Zelensky. But he has, uh, you notice Time's using just one eye on the end. He has two Ys in yeah. Vogue and all the other, that's a marketing exercise. But anyway, let's not digress. So he's been given the big award here. So this is the most influential person in the world, according to Time Magazine. And here he is here. Let's take a look at the cover, Mike. There it is. You can see him looking pensive and somewhat bewildered. Um, at this kind of cast of characters around him. So it's not just Vladimir Zelensky, Mike, it's also the spirit of Ukraine is being, the spirit of Ukraine is also the co-beneficiary of this year's award. So look at that, isn't that interesting? Like who are all these people? One of them actually caught my eye, Mike, and it's, it's, it's this one here, like who is this guy? That's a familiar face. I looked at that and I thought, I know that face. I know that face. Where do I know that face? Let's blow that up a little bit. Who is this man? And uh, it, it's none other, Mike, than the British, uh, the famed war zone physician, Dr. Knott. Why is he on the cover of Time right in Zelensky's ear, right there? I mean, it's just extraordinary. And so we had to dig, well, yeah, that's the standard press image there. There he is, Royal Society of Medicine, Dr. David Knott, and just to refresh uh, people's memories, we have a clip of him uh, visiting East Aleppo in 2014, uh, doing a sort of uh, uh, returning to where he used to work in the hospital. Then we'll comment up after this. I'm sure Vanessa has a few things to say about this gentleman and his exploits in Syria, but go ahead and roll this. Forms. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we're on top of uh, one of the hospitals where I worked last year. Um, and you can see it was barrel bombed. There were two barrel bombs, one dropped here and one dropped over there on top of the hospital to try and destroy it. So last year I was saying that, uh, that the hospital was attempted to be destroyed, but this year you can see the destruction. I remember having my photograph taken, remember? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I advise not to, not to stay up here too long. Yeah, too dangerous there up there on the roof. Um, so that's Dr. Knott, and so he's, he's known as this guy who goes to, to war zones and operates on the wounded in war zones. The only problem is my, he only operates on one side of the conflict, and it's usually the side of NATO. Uh, whether it's in Syria or Libya or in wherever, Bosnia. Yeah. So this is why he's famous. He's got a big foundation. Again, why is he on the cover of Time next to Zelensky? Well, he's been doing, I guess, this work in Ukraine as well. Take a while, guess which side of the conflict he's on and who he's working on. But uh, Vanessa, you know, he, he, uh, he, he shot the fame in our eyes when he claimed, I think it was on a BBC report, uh, that he had to instruct surgeons by Skype because it was too dangerous, but that the Russians hacked the Skype call, got the location, the GPS location, and then bombed the M10 hospital in East Aleppo. Is that the name of the hospital? I believe that we visited yeah. that hospital, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was directly opposite um, a Nusra Front headquarters and a White Helmet headquarters um, that were shared um, facilities, of course, as they were throughout Syria. But also the really... Um, the kind of the major story that broke 
uh, with Dr. Knott, if you remember, was back in, I think it was 2012 or 13, the story of the Syrian Arab army sniper who had managed to kill a fetus in a pregnant woman's belly. Uh, and the x-ray image of the bullet in the fetus head from inside the woman's stomach was published all over the BBC, The Guardian, The Times, before, of course, being completely debunked by genuine medical professionals who said, you know, this is entirely impossible. Had had the bullet entered a fetus's brain through the woman, you wouldn't have um, the intact um, um, womb, and also the, the fetus would, have, would be disintegrated, and you wouldn't have um, the bullet in, in perfect form <laughs> in the fetus's head. I mean, it's completely, it's insane, but of course, you know, people suspend disbelief. But not also, of course, established Medics Under Fire, which also included Hamish de Bretton Gordon of the Fridge Bomb fame um, and the um, amplification of the chemical weapon narratives in Syria, close friend of James LeMessurier, who established the White Helmets. But also in Medics Under Fire was Toby Cadman, um, the UK FCO funded lawyer. Um, that is contracted to basically bring war crimes charges against President Assad. Um, and uh, I think her name is Dr. Sayela Hassan, who was, I could have that name completely wrong, um, right. who was, of course, right involved in British uh, BBC Panorama um, saving uh, Syria's children. So there you go. That, that a small part of Dr. Knott's. Um, fraudulent predigree, basically. I can't think of any other way to put it. Well, you know, he's uh, he's a national treasure, uh, according to the BBC and others. So he's uh, widely revered and made it to the cover of Time, mm. uh, which is a, another great achievement uh, for, for the good doctor there. Let's take a look at that cover again, though, Mike. And there's been a few revisions to this cover, as you might imagine, in the memsphere. Uh, let's take a look at this. A little bit of a transition, metamorphosis, and you get this. This is circulating, grifter of the year, Vladimir Zelensky and the Nazis of Ukraine. And it's a very different cast of characters, as you can see, surrounding Vladimir. And uh, he looks like he's been in a snowstorm or something. Sean Penn's there on hand, just on the bottom left-hand side. You've got everybody, Victoria Newland, Hillary Clinton, Angelina Jolie, Biden, of course, Pelosi, and then a whole host of Nazi Azov battalion fighters there. So very interesting. So people are pastiching this, and this is another version here. This is uh, Vladimir Zelensky and Sam Bankman-Fried, a sort of hybrid character there. Uh, Vladimir Bankman uh, is the man of the year, person of the year there. So laundering money in Ukraine, you get the joke. It's not really funny because it's actually, it's true. Yeah. Um, so, so what happened, My, I posted this that cover on my Facebook page yesterday. I was so excited about this award for Zelensky. I thought, I want to post this on my Facebook page and, you know, just kind of, well, I didn't really cheer it on. I criticized it. And so someone asked in my uh, thread, Mike, they said, didn't Adolf Hitler get Time's Man of the Year as well? And I said, of course he did. And I posted a JPEG of a Time magazine cover from 1938 of Adolf Hitler, and my account got suspended for another 60 days. So that's after just getting back on Facebook after being off for the last six months. 
Uh, and so look at that. There we go. There's my various restrictions there. So, so but I've seen this image on other people's. Uh, I'm not complaining. I'm not saying I'm being targeted, but I have seen that image on many other people's accounts and still circulating to this day. So unfortunately, this issue is being very tightly policed on social media. Facebook is whitewashing Nazism in the Ukraine, and that's the bottom line, and that's the real joke of it all and the community standards at Facebook. Okay, well, if, if big uh, media organizations are supporting Zelensky in Ukraine, uh, there's also fundraising going on in the fashion industry, Vanessa. Yeah, um, this was, I, it's a relatively, it's, it's not a very new story, but of course, there's been a lot going on, um, both with Zelensky, of course, and also with um, one of the ambassadors that is working to fundraise for Ukraine, ostensibly. So um, basically, I wrote this up at my um, Substack. People can find it there from yesterday. Um, Valenciaga Creative uh, Director is ambassador for Zelensky's United24 fundraiser. And as I put, the normalization of Nazis by fashion moguls, astronauts, and academics. You'll see why I said that in a, in a, in a moment. So what is United24? It was the initiative of the president of Ukraine. Unfortunately, he hasn't changed his clothes since um, February 2022. But he established it back in um, February, March to, to raise more funds, um, despite the billions that he's getting from um, the states and the EU and the UK. Um, but one of his ambassadors is the creative director of Balanchaga, Demna Gav Gav Gavsalia, I'm sure that's mispronounced, um, who's ambassador of President Zelensky's fundraising platform, United24. Among others, of course, is uh, Barbara Streisand. I'm sure uh, Sean Penn is doing his bit to raise money um, for Zelensky and the Ukrainian um, Azov Battalion and, and the Ida Battalion, etc. Um, and then let's have a look at Balanchaga. Of course, people will probably know that Balanchaga were, were recently the subject of some controversy. Um, this is a headline in just one article talking about it. It was inappropriate. Balanchaga's creative director breaks the silence amid ad campaign controversy. Now, what was the ad campaign controversy was that children were effectively used for a photo shoot um, promoting Balanchaga teddy bear bags. The unfortunate thing were the teddy bear bags were dressed in bondage gear and wearing fishnet stockings and had very young children under the age of 10 holding them in the photographs. And in one photo, court documentation can be seen on the desk where the Balanchaga bag is placed from the 2008 case titled United States versus Williams. The controversial case ruled that the pandering of child pornography did not violate the First Amendment, even if the person charged with such an offense did already possess such um, pornography to trade. So Balanchaga were basically accused of um, sexualizing children, grooming children, um, and uh, using children for, for child uh, pornography. People might also remember, I was reminded on the Substack post about Azov films in Toronto in Canada in 2011 that were investigated by a Canadian police operation called Operation Spade 
Um, and they found amongst their portfolio 63 videos um, containing child pornography. They were shut down. And then in 2013, there was a sort of equivalent operation, which you also probably remember, also called Operation Spade in the UK. Interesting that Azov films um, were made in Eastern Europe. And with the name, um, one can safely speculate um, that they were being made in Ukraine. Just a little aside, but it connects into this, I think. Um, so how much has Zelensky raised to date? Well, a very paltry sum of um, through various methods. Why is this fundraiser important for both Ukraine and the world? Of course, uh, you know, he talks about the terrorists in Russia um, attacking essential civilian infrastructure. And we have a very similar kind of tagline to what we used to hear in Syria. They attack houses, schools, and hospitals, killing civilians. And he talks about millions of people have been left defenseless right before winter. Um, and he's talking about the Shahed uh, Hunter uh, anti-drone systems. If the Shahed uh, drones, which are from Iran, are not prevented, Ukraine will face a humanitarian catastrophe of unprecedented scale. All of this kind of hyperbole is very familiar to those that have followed any imperialist or NATO venture, including Iraq and Libya and Syria. But then look what he says here as, as the last point, which, which I sort of, it, it kind of reminded me of the way that Erdogan used to blackmail the EU with the refugee crisis. And here you have Zelensky basically claiming Ukraine cannot export electricity to the EU, which supports the stability of the European energy system. So effectively what he's saying, unless you fund me to, to purchase anti-drone systems, you're not going to have electricity this winter. So I just, oh, the, the other point that I want to make here, of course, all of these funds that he's raising supposedly to rebuild Ukraine, and on the website, there are a number of images of destroyed hospitals, destroyed schools. Of course, we know that the Azov battalions are occupying hospitals and schools, just as Al-Qaeda did in Syria. And that is why these particular buildings are often being targeted. In many cases, like the maternity hospital story, they're not even being used anymore as a maternity hospital. They're used solely um, as military headquarters. Um, but I would guarantee, almost guarantee, that the majority of these funds that are coming into Ukraine and to Zelensky are just going to disappear. Who's going to be auditing them? Who's going to ensure that they go where they're supposed to go? Just as we saw in Syria, the funds that were coming into multiple agencies here in Syria, and there is no accountability. There has never been an audit of the White Helmet, for example. Um, so, and, and then let's listen to Claire Daly again in the European Parliament talking about exactly that, the money that's coming into Ukraine. Billions of EU assistance going to Ukraine are not free their loans, which Ukraine will default on, and they come with neoliberal strings attached. 
If you listen to The Economist, Ukraine is marked for a nightmare round of shock therapy, a sell-off of public land, deregulation of labour, sale of public assets, on it goes. The country's future is being sold to finance a proxy war that's tearing it apart. And of course the loans have preconditions that Ukraine must uphold democracy and rule of law, but since the tap was turned on, Zelensky has banned most opposition parties, shuttered the media, attacked trade unions and workers' rights, but the billions keep flowing. This is a country, our Court of Auditors have said, was a country accused of grand corruption. And on it goes while the EU policy seems designed to prevent peace and keep the war going at all costs as long as ordinary people pay. So between Russian tanks and European banks, there will be little left of Ukraine when this is over. Don't forget, war is a racket and there's going to be hell to pay for this one. Well, strong words again from Claire Daly, absolutely on point, of course. Um, Ukraine is effectively um, a failed state that's being kept afloat with um, the, the, the money laundering activities of NATO member states. Um, but coming back to the fundraiser, um, what else is Zelensky looking to fund? Um, a fundraiser that will become a game changer during the formation of the world's first naval fleet of drones. So, you know, he's basically not only asking for defense systems, which, of course, very much plays into the NATO narrative that Ukraine is defending itself against an aggressive Russian state, um, but he's obviously also looking for offensive weapon capability. Let's see what else he's, he's advertising um, to raise money. Um, this is Azov style. It's an Azov style bracelet, a symbol of perseverance. Um, the bracelet that you see is made from the last pre-war batch and, and of steel manufactured at the legendary Azovstal plant, a symbol of incredible courage that tells the story of might and fortitude. It also tells the story of being um, occupied by the Azov battalion that, of course, now is being normalized and glorified by a Western media that back in 2016 were um, raising outrage about the growth of far-right and, and neo-Nazism in Ukraine. Um, extraordinary to, to kind of see this complete reversal or, or inversion of um, reality. Of course, Mariupol is predominantly also pro-Russian. Um, then let's have a look at some of the other ambassadors. So here we have um, Timothy Snyder, a professor of history at Yale University. Um, author of a book called Bloodlands, which ironically um, describes the uh, oppression of the Hitler regime and, in his view, Stalin also. Um, now, he's directly involved. I, as an academic, one would assume that he would be involved in the rebuilding of hospitals, the rebuilding of schools, um, something that has a humanitarian flavor, right? No, in reality, he's raised 500,000 to buy the anti-drone system. Why does this academic consider that that is not a breach of academic ethics? He says, I'm a historian and a scholar, and in the long run, I want to be raising money to rebuild libraries, schools, and universities. But right now, 
we have to do what is more urgent, which is to raise money to help Ukraine defend itself from murderous drones. Extraordinary. Who else is involved as an ambassador? Astronaut Scott Kelly, who came to Ukraine, saw with his own eyes, this is taken from the website, how the doctors of the Okmadjit uh, Children's Hospital work in the dark. In addition, Kelly visited Butcher and Erpin, met with Ukrainian pilots, and starred in a video supporting Ukrainian doctors. Then you have famous Canadian philanthropist James Temerty transferred $1 million um, to the fund. So what does this remind you of, these, these celebrities and academics getting involved in a war that, in reality, the U.S. is officially not involved in? Um, you have an academic raising money for defense systems, military defense systems, uh, in a foreign nation, whereas I say the U.S. is ostensibly not directly involved. Of course, we know that that isn't true. But let's look again at the 10 um, principles of war propaganda from Belgian historian Anne Morelli. And we see right there at number eight, recognized intellectuals and artists support our cause. It's, it's the um, NATO imperialist playbook time and again. And, and these 10 principles can apply to every single operation, again, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Yugoslavia, and now in Ukraine. Right, thank you very much for that, Vanessa. And I just, just very briefly, if we could, uh, let's just talk about yeah. uh, SOF. Yeah, I mean, this, this is extraordinary. I picked up on this actually this morning. Um, on a Facebook friend had, had posted one of the images from this account. This is on their Instagram channel. So this is a Ukrainian um, fashion outlet called Soft Ukraine that are selling um, T-shirts and sweatshirts that are absolutely horrific. This is one of them, Russian baby for breakfast with a baby being boiled in the pan there. Um, if you look at the next one, Dad is calling. Who is Dad? Stepan Bandera, of course, genocidal mass murderer, um, carried out numerous programs against Jews and communists. And here you have t shirts and sweatshirts extolling um, his virtues. Um, and here, uh, again, th this sort of links into the whole Balanchaga um, fiasco also, because here you have a very young girl wearing a t shirt with a what that is, a cat um, carrying a submachine gun. Um, not sure what make it is. And on the right, you have, again, images of violence, um, the, the, the babush, is it the babushka dolls? Um, being exploded. I mean, just extraordinary that this stuff is openly being sold. And you can find similar on Amazon, you similar to the most popular kind of um, media and um, uh, mail order websites, and yet nobody is shutting it down. And yet, you know, we have our Patreon accounts shut down for agreeing with scientific uh, assessment of the dangers of vaccines. It's, it's just, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. Well. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Vanessa. Uh, let's uh, let's move on, Patrick, then to, uh, well, 
Freedom, freedom of speech and what's going on with Twitter? Well, the Twitter files is probably the biggest uh, political story in, in a lot of people's estimation, Mike, uh, of the modern era, but it's just not getting any coverage. So as we learned last week, and as you reported as well, um, but, but now, look, blacklists um, are being uh, discovered. Uh, so there are actual blacklists. So the, the thing is, a lot of people weren't expecting that this data would ever uh, see the light of day. Um, because A, they weren't expecting that Twitter was going to sell. So all this was going on. They were running riot, doing all this censorship, deplatforming, political targeting. So actual blacklists, who knows whose names are on those blacklists. Uh, maybe mine, uh, other people we know. Uh, but certainly this is making some waves. So Jack Dorsey, the former head of Twitter, um, is weighing in on this. So he's challenging Elon Musk. So what's Dorsey saying? Dorsey's still an equity holder in Twitter, mm -hmm. but he's no longer, you know, CEO. He's not running the thing anymore. He's a, one of the founders of Twitter. He confronts Musk over the release of what he's calling unfiltered Twitter files. Here's what he said, uh, challenging him on Twitter here. Elon Musk saying, looks like we need another day or so. Jack, here's Jack at Jack. Uh, if the goal is transparency, he's talking to Elon here, to build trust, uh, why not just release everything without a filter and let the people judge for themselves, including all discussions around current and future actions. Make everything public now. Hashtag Twitter files. I mean, Mike, <laughs> this is like, can you believe this is Jack Dorsey saying this? Mm -hmm. You need to be transparent. This all happened while Jack Dorsey was chief executive, was the CEO of Twitter. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's a bit rich. So Musk replies here to Jack. Oops, we went a little bit fast there. Um, so Musk replies here, most important data was hidden from you too, he said, and some may have been deleted, but everything uh, we find will be released eventually. So Musk is giving it to Matt Taibbi, who's an independent journalist, formerly with the Rolling Stone, and they're, they're parsing it out. So why, would, why, do, why does the media do that with the Snowden files, with other stories, with other big stories? Because there's, there's a certain strategy in releasing information, has a certain amount of impact, certain points. So if you, if you dump it all at once, um, there is maybe a chance that it, a lot of it might end up getting lost in the wash. So Jack Dorsey is trying to protect his own interests, I think, and his own legacy, which is a horrible one. But it turns out, Mike, the reason they were slow walking this information to Musk, because the head counsel, legal counsel at Twitter, Jim Baker, is the former uh, lawyer for the FBI who created and, and ran the whole Alpha Bank Russiagate side of the scandal. So th this guy got taken on by Twitter. Mm. And then now Musk has come in. He's fired him. Fired him two days ago. Right. He sacked Jim Baker, former FBI legal counsel, then head of Twitter legal counsel. He was gatekeeping all of this stuff. So you can see there's an absolute collusion between the U.S. government, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and big tech mm. to censor and to deplatform, to remove tweets. And even the Biden administration in these emails, Mike, during the Arizona election with Kerry Lake, the, um, or sorry, the uh, Katie Hobbs governor, Democratic governor candidate, had uh, pro Kerry Lake tweets removed. Those emails have been released. Biden, when he was running in 2020, his campaign was getting anti-Biden stuff or Hunter Biden material taken off Twitter. And so this was going on. So these are campaigns in elections using Twitter to censor the opposition. Yeah. This has been happening yeah. and consistently. Yeah. So that is the conclusion. So they can no longer take the private company defense.
It's, it, it's no longer valid because when the government colludes with big tech to deny the First Amendment or freedom of speech, rights of people, you can no longer hide behind, oh, it's a private company. Mm -hmm. They can do what they want. Which is what the UK government's trying to do with the latest updates, the online safety bill. It's not tenable. And we'd love to see those emails, wouldn't we? Uh, the communications between yes. the UK government and big tech. That would certainly would be interesting, yes, wouldn't it? Yes, indeed. Indeed. Okay, well, let's end with this then, because uh, there have been some updates on what's been going on with in the Netherlands with the Dutch farmers. So uh, this, uh, first of all, heavy-handed measures by the Dutch police to shut down farmers' protests against the government who are threatening forced buyouts of 3,000 farms in an attempt to reduce nitrogen oxide emissions as mandated by the EU is what the tweet says from James Melville. Uh, so, of course, the Dutch government wanting to buy and close down 3,000 farms near what they describe as environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, they are attempting to shut down uh, also nitrogen pollution is what they're claiming. Uh, so that's some of the footage. Here's some more footage uh, from another uh, Twitter feed um, with the big... Uh, excavators, earth movers, whatever they are, trying to push the tractors out of the way. Uh, but as we'll see in a second on this particular clip, uh, the guy who's standing in front of the, uh, the officials' uh, heavy weaponry there is about to get dragged into a, a van uh, by some plainclothes guys. Um, so the, the Dutch police are coming out with bulldozers uh, and, and thugs, basically, uh, un, unmarked vans with uh, plainclothes uh, thugs, they're supposedly police, I'm not sure. I think they'll show that in a second. Well, they will do. Um, so it, it, is, it is quite incredible that this uh, continues to go on with very little coverage in the Western media, in the UK media at Here, least. Here's the paddy wagon and the uh, football hooligans working for the police. Yes. Masks, everything, just grabbing people right off the street throwing in a van. Now, the key point here is that the Netherlands is a particularly special country with respect to farming. Many people don't know this. They have a process called the Haber-Bosch process that they use for food production. And as a result of that process, farming in the Netherlands, rather, is the second largest food exporter in the world. This has massive implications for food availability, food security, not just in the Netherlands, but in Europe and the rest of the world if the Netherlands starts to shut down its food production. Uh, but it's not just in the Netherlands. In the UK, farm leaders warn of huge contraction in UK food production. This is Farmers Weekly from a few weeks ago. Uh, we're seeing huge contra contraction in the protected crop sector. They're also seeing huge contraction in, uh, in vegetables and fruits uh, in the UK. And uh, I just, I left that um, uh, see also at the at the top of that little uh, insert there, food production and environment go hand in hand, says DEFRA Minister, because of course at the back of this, uh, Patrick, is the uh, Agenda 2030 and the various World Economic Forum, a Green New Deal, levelling up, whatever term you want to put on it and so on. Uh, also in the UK, we've got to remind ourselves, record avian flu outbreak sees 48 million birds culled in the UK and EU as slaughtered on suspicion progresses and we're starting to see availability problems as a result. This is Birmingham Live supermarkets report stock shortages, uh, but this isn't something that's new. This has been going on for a while. So this is back in 2021. Shops record lowest stock levels since 1983. The shortage could last until Christmas. And here's a more up-to-date article from July. Little says stock issues to blame for empty freezers and chillers. This continues to go on, not just the, not the Netherlands, not just the UK. 
also France. Uh, let's do a quick uh, translation of this. Stoppages in site for food production. Uh, and basically, uh, this is the canned food specialist uh, Coflego, or I can't remember exactly what they're called, but anyway, uh, 300 million uh, euro turnover. Uh, they have temporarily shut down four of its eight factories in France uh, beginning on the 2nd of January. Uh, that's 80% of its production, and this is a result of the cost of energy. Okay, uh, so this is the announcement that it's actually going to shut down most of their production. Uh, but if we uh, move on to this, France sees soft wheat crop down 7% uh, in this year. Um, and so this is also the availability of food and so on. Uh, it going into the food production chain is also causing problems as well. Uh, but of course, what's the reason for it, Patrick? It's not government policy, it's conflict. Uh, because as with uh, you know, health issues and hospitals not doing the jobs, that's not government policy, that's COVID does that. In this area, uh, with energy or with food production, the reductions in availability are not because of government policy, they're because of conflict. We've got to make sure we remember that always. And, and who's, who's responsible for the conflict? Putin. Everybody say it all together. Putin, Vladimir Putin, is his fault. Mike, the question is, if Europe can't produce food or food production gets disrupted or reduced in Europe because they literally can't afford to either run factories, the government is shut downing farmlands, wanting to rewild farmlands, uh, take the Dutch off the farmlands because of climate change goals, where's the food going to come from? It's going to come, it's going to have to get imported from somewhere and it's going to be not cheaper, it's going to be more expensive. I dare say the quality will be less and GMO will then be a major option. So those who are well invested, in, like Monsanto and Mr. Gates and so forth, fake meat uh, being produced elsewhere via soya crops or whatever, and that's gonna get imported. So this is an interesting trend. Europe, the UK, not able to produce energy, not able to produce food, totally at the whims of external forces. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but uh, six months or a year ago, maybe a bit longer, uh, there were headlines about Bill Gates buying up huge quantities of farmland. Um, now, as we see the small farmer being pushed out of the market, uh, what does, does is, did Bill know something at that stage, do you think? Well, that's why he's rich, Mike, because he's just that much smarter than everybody else. He knows where to park his money uh, ahead of time because he foresees these things like pandemics. This is why he is the great entrepreneur and philanthropist that he is, Mr. Bill Gates. Indeed. Uh, Vanessa, thoughts? Um, well, also, not forgetting that Zelensky sold off, um, I think it was 18 million hectares of Ukrainian arable land to the likes of uh, Monsanto. So, as I said, you know, the majority of Ukraine doesn't belong to Ukraine anyway. <laughs> yes. But also, you know, that, that, that's um, an interesting slot into what you've been talking about. Thank you for that. But the good news is, Mike, they're loosening up marijuana laws. So, you know, if it's all too much for you and the stress is too much, you can just, just get, have a smoke. You can get stoned. And maybe even Rishi will have a voucher for that this winter. So there's something to look forward to. Okay. Well, on that note, we've got to leave it for today. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for some extra on the main live stream. Uh, but otherwise, we'll see you at 1 p.m. on Monday. Hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, see you then. Bye-bye.